A favorite family recipe has the power to pass love and culture down through generations. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today believes in this power so much that he decided to write a book about it, highlighting his own heritage and hoping he can reach a new audience with it. Kevin Noble Millard's new children's book, Fry Bread, is a celebration of Native American family tradition through a delicious dish. With Juana Martinez-Neal's illustrations, the book shows a culture Millard says is all too often excluded from children's literature. Kevin joins me now on the phone. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me on. So first things first, what is fry bread? So fry bread is, uh, I would call it a treat uh, that Native families do, Native American families. Um, it is made of flour, salt, uh, sugar, uh, and in my case, cornbread, uh, cornmeal. And you mix all those up and you let the dough rise because there's yeast there. And then after it rises, then you fry it. And whenever you make fry bread, uh, you can't make it just for yourself. So you have to make it for a whole crew of family. So it's something that's very communal. Everyone loves to eat it. And it's something that you eat on special occasions. It's not something that you could do every day because it takes so long to make. It usually takes me about five hours to do it. Wow. Uh, you know, from starting it out and then waiting for the dough rise and then getting all the oil ready. So it's something that you do on occasion for other people, and it's a joyous thing. But it originated from something that was not so joyous at all, which was Indian removal and relocation. So when Native uh, tribes were here before um, Europeans um, came to America and took all of Native people's lands. Native people had uh, foods that they normally ate, uh, game, uh, fruits, vegetables that they had eaten for thousands of years. And then when they were forcibly relocated to other locations, so in my tribe's case, from Florida all the way to Oklahoma, they were faced with unfamiliar foods. So everything that they had known their entire lives, they weren't able to eat this anymore. So fry bread was born out of deprivation. It was survival because this food was made from government rations. So the government would have given these early peoples uh, these commodities like flour, uh, you know, the sugar, the, the meal. And then this is what people made from what little things that they had. So it starts off as something that is about survival. And now it's something about a celebration. So who in your family made fry bread? It was my grandmother's sister. So my grandmother died in the 1940s. Uh, she was gone long before I came around. And so her sisters took up um, the, the mantle of making fry bread. And I had two aunts. Uh, one was a country aunt, and the other one was the town aunt. And the country aunt had her way of making fry bread. Everyone makes it differently, and everyone thinks their version is right. And the only thing that anyone can agree on about fry bread is that everybody else's version is wrong. Hmm. And so 
I had these two aunts that would make fry bread. Uh, the country one would kind of make it kind of in an earthy way. Uh, the town one, she, you could say that she was a gourmand, right? She subscribed to the New York Times. You know, it would arrive like five days later, but still, <laughs> she, she was very much into food. And so her version was more scientific. And so that's what I would say is the version that I inherited. So when all of these old aunts died in my family, there was no one to make fry bread. And I really missed it. And in my generation of um, of people that are born, they're all men. And so nobody was making fry bread. So I thought no one else is going to do this. The fry bread's not going to make itself. So then I just decided to do it on my own. Hmm. And so ever since then, I've become the fry bread lady in my family Hmm. and people expect it whenever I go home. Uh, And now uh, people in my children's class, I have kids in elementary school. I make it, you know, on different occasions and all the parents and the kids expect it. Um, But I enjoy doing this because it's something that's about like sharing and getting together. And and it's something that just tastes really, really good. And I'm also glad to share this tradition, this story with other people, because then they can learn a little bit more about Native culture. That all being said, what inspired you to write a children's book? And why did you focus on fry bread specifically for this book? Yeah, so when... I became a parent. Uh, I have kids that are seven and four. I was looking for diverse books for them. And so I'm African-American and Native American. My partner is Asian-American. So I was looking for books that had characters in it that look like my kids. And so this was around 2012. And so I could find African-American books. I could find Asian-American books. I could not find native books. And it was so strange to me that there was just like this very odd erasure of modern native stories. The only native books that I could find were about Thanksgiving or Pocahontas or Squanto, people that lived a long time ago. And these books were not written by Native people. They were written by white people. And so the stories that were presented were like, happy Thanksgiving, everybody's getting along. Um, And it was all about the harmony between Europeans and Natives. And there was nothing in there that was from a Native perspective. And I thought that this was just the strangest thing. So there were no books that were like, you know, um, this little Native kid is learning how to tie his shoes, or um, this kid doesn't want to take a nap. You know, just like average stories were not there at all. And I started to search more and more. You know, I get on Amazon, I go to my local bookstore and ask them, and I was coming up with nothing. The only books that I could find were books that were published by tribes themselves, Um, you know, very small books and not on a national level. And there were very few authors. I could only find three authors at the time. And so that's when I started thinking, well, I wonder if I could do this. And um, I've been writing for the New York Times for almost 10 years now. And I was working as an editor uh, in the opinion section. And so one of the 
uh, issues that I was having people write on was do politics belong in children's literature? And so there was this author that I had copies of his books for my kids. And so I just wrote him up one day. He's this African-American author named Jabari Asim. And so I just wrote him up and I said, Jabari, what would I do if I wanted to write a book about like native kids? Because there just are not any of these books that are out there. And then he said, call up this editor. Why don't you try, you know, these three editors and see what happens. And, uh, and, you know, it ran from there. And so, you know, you always try to write about what you know the best. And so I was thinking, well, I do love making fry bread. This is something that everybody loves. Uh, you know, cooking stories are always really great. And so I wanted to do a story about how I learned to make fry bread with all these old ladies in hmm. my family. Did you consume more fry bread than usual in the making of this book? Yes, and making it so much more than I ever did. And so one of the um, results of this process of writing the book is my fry bread recipe is on point right now. And it was really funny because I was a graduate student doing a PhD in political theory at the University of Michigan. And so I was around all of, all of these Chippewa people from the upper Midwest, right? So they're all from like, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan. And so, you know, we'd all get together, these native people, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, just all kinds of things. And so we're talking about fry bread. And so they'd start describing this thing that I was thinking was a pancake. And I was like, that's not fry bread. And then so they asked me, well, what do you think fry bread is? And then they're telling me, that's not fry bread, right? So it's all kind of like a fun teasing of like, your version is totally wrong, hmm. right? But every culture has some kind of argumentative food, whether it's baklava or it could be um, chicken noodle soup or kimchi. And the way that you come to appreciate that food is usually your first taste. And that's the way that you've come to appreciate it, right? No one makes hummus like my great aunt mm -hmm. Sally, right? No one can um, make a babka like my grandma. And so it's the same thing for fry bread, right? And then it's something that is universal in each of these cultures. And it's something that brings everyone together. And so I thought, well, you know, I feel very strongly about the way that I make fry bread. And it's also a thing where I didn't want to feel that my version of fry bread was wrong. So in talking about the book with my editor, I gave her my first version and she came back and said, why don't you try something that's a little more abstract and lyrical and symbolic? And the approach, the second approach that I came up with was, why don't we talk about fry bread as a metaphor for talking about the diversity of Native people in America? Yeah, I wanted to ask you that question. What would you say are among the biggest misconceptions about Indigenous people that you were looking to dispel in this book? There are two main things. What they look like and where we live. 
So the majority of Native people live in metropolitan areas. I think the Hollywood stereotype is that people, Native people live out in Arizona. Everyone lives in reservations. But the vast majority, it's like 68% of Native people live in cities. And the highest population of Native people in America live in New York City. So when you want to, you know, think about like where do all the native people live? It's not necessarily out west, right? It's in Queens, it's in Brooklyn, it could be in the Bronx. And there are native people that are everywhere. And then these people look like everything. And this is reflected in the illustrations written by uh drawn by Juana Martinez Neal. I came up to her and I said, we really need to make all these Native kids in the book and the families, we need to make them look like what Native people actually look like. So it's not that Native people all have, you know, copper-toned skin, high cheekbones, straight, long black hair that's maybe in a braid, but people could have like curly black hair. They could look like African-Americans. They could have red hair. They could have very pale skin. There's been so much intermingling of cultures and races, but then these people still think of themselves as Native people. They could live in Native communities. They exist in Native families. And so what she did, the Juana, the illustrator, she raided my Instagram page. She asked me to send her pictures of my own family, mm. and she put us all in the book. Wow. So it's interesting seeing some of the comments that some people are like, they, they get it, where they say, look at all these different ways that Native people look. And yeah. other people will say, oh, they should have put more Native people in the book. Huh. Every single person in that book is Native, but they just don't fit the preconceived conception of what Native people look like. So what was your initial reaction to Juana's illustrations when you saw your family represented in this book? Well, so at the time I was teaching at Columbia, and so I got this email saying, the, the art is ready, we're attaching it on PDF. And so I'm on the, you know, the 116, the 116th Street, one train, and I'm riding it downtown because I live all the way down in Union Square. And so I'm like opening this up on the train. I'm looking at these sketches and then I'm completely overwhelmed with just like all kinds of emotion because it was like, you know, I had written this. It took a really long time, you know, and it takes her quite a long time to do all of the art. And so then when I saw it, it was just like, wow, you know, I've been seen. I'm so excited to have other people be seen. This is going to be really great because then people can see themselves reflected in these pages of the book. There's so much discussion about representation in popular culture. How can we get more of these stories that are 
you know, new traditions or not even new traditions. They're already existing traditions, but they just have not been broadcast. They have not been televised. And so, you know, there can be all of these stories about like black love stories or um, immigration stories from the perspective of the people that are newly coming to the United States or um, Asian Americans who are artistic or, you know, who do not play the piano or the violin. And so the way that these stereotypes come about is because there have not been these stories that have been transmitted in movies, in TV, and in books. And if you think about it, children's books and picture books, that's popular culture for that age level. So for adults, it might be movies and television, but for kids, their first encounter with the larger world is in books. And so one of the things, the mission of this book was to get these different pictures and these realistic pictures and practical pictures of Native people out there in the public eye, in people's books, in people's libraries. Kids can see these at bedtime. They can see them uh, in schools. And then also the parents and the teachers can see these as well. And so I could see children's books. You know, this all started with me um, editing this guy's piece in the New York Times about do politics belong in children's literature. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this might be a book about making bread with your grandma, but it's also about making all different kinds of bread and all of these different versions of this fry bread are legitimate. They come in different colors. People have different ingredients. They make them in different sizes. So this metaphor for fry bread being the diversity of natives in America, it's something that's much bigger, and that's a political statement. So some people might say, like, oh, you know, it's not children's books shouldn't be political, but that's how they encounter the world. And that's how so many people have these misconceptions of what Native people are. Because the the lessons that we learn about Native people, they many times start and end in elementary school. Even today, people in elementary school still dress up as feathers, you know, as mm -hmm. feathered creatures for Thanksgiving, right? The pilgrims, you know, with the hats and those guns that look like horns, you know, the muskets. And then those are the last lessons that they learn about Native people. Oh, it's Thanksgiving. Like, and then they disappeared. And in the process of um, talking about fry bread to so many people, I've learned that a majority of Americans, and there are polls on this, a majority of Americans think that Native people died out, that they don't exist anymore, mm. that they vanished off into the ether, died out, uh, they moved somewhere else, or they just don't exist. There's an especially poignant image in the book, which you have referred to as the wall. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so... There's a, a family, and they are looking at this wall. We see their backs, and they're looking at this wall of the names of all the tribes in the United States. And so there are over 
No, not over. There are exactly 574. There was one tribe that was approved in December. There are 574 federally recognized native tribes and about 100 or so state recognized tribes. And there's a handful of other tribes that are petitioning for recognition but haven't gotten there yet. And so all these different groups, to see them all together, they're all on this wall. It kind of looks like a Vietnam um, War memorial, but it's not a memorial because all these people are not dead. We are still here, but it's overwhelming to see all of these tribe names in one place. And so it's on that wall page, and it's also in the end papers of the book. So right when you open the book at the beginning and um, and also at the very end, every single one of these tribes is listed. And it's just been a very, quite frankly, an emotional experience to have people tweet pictures of their fingers pointing to their tribes. And they're so excited because their tribe has never been put in a book before. Mm. And so we went through and we made sure that we were getting all the names of the tribes right, uh, that they were represented the way that the tribe wanted to be represented. So there are about 800 names there. So when you're thinking, like, where, you know, where do Native people live? What are all these tribes' names? Seeing them there all in one space is just this extremely persuasive testament of resilience and our present existence in the United States right now. And all of these names, they all tell a story that the people exist. They have not gone anywhere. And so when we have these characters on that wall page looking at all of these names, they're learning they are absorbing, and they're also seeing just the mammoth, wide diversity of all of these tribes in the United States. And it was a learning process for me. Yeah, what did you I learn know, from that? Oh, yeah. I know all of the tribes in Oklahoma, hmm. but I'm, I was unfamiliar with some of the Pueblos in New Mexico. I was unfamiliar with uh, these tribes that were consolidated on rancherias in California. And I was completely a new student for all of the hundreds and hundreds of Alaskan native villages. And so I went through this process where I thought, wow, there's so many more people than I even expected. And I think that any even Native person would be able to look at this list and think, there are so many people here that I have not even learned about. And each one of these tribes is completely different. They have different cultural practices. They have uh, different traditions. They have all different languages. And so if we have hundreds of languages, hundreds of names, they live in every single state and city in the United States, it's a way of saying that the story that has been represented to us before has been wrong because there haven't been enough of us 
telling these stories. And this year was an especially wonderful year for Native American children's literature because there were more of these stories that were being recognized by the big publishing houses that were winning awards. So this is a wonderful moment. You could even say that it's a renaissance because people are hungry for these stories. They want to see these contemporary stories that happen after 1900. We should point out that you won a very distinguished award for this book yourself, right? I did, and it was a big surprise to me. Um, I won the Robert F. Seidel Seibert Medal for um, Most Distinguished Informational Book. Um, it's a very big award. I was just gobsmacked uh, when I got it. And then I also, the book and the whole team of editors, publicists, um, bookers, fact checkers, research assistants. There were almost 20 of us that worked on this book and we were all rooting for each other and rooting for the book. Um, we also um, won the American Indian Youth Literature Honor uh, and there were two other awards. Um, so people really responded to the book and it was just a very warm reward for something that we worked so hard on for four years. I mean, it was just a massive process doing this book. And I'm a journalist, and I'm also a law professor. So I've done research. I've worked on long-form articles. I've worked on academic books. And this was just as intensive and time-consuming as any of those academic projects. I understand you so debated over see, everything. You debated over the shape of grandma's hips for a few weeks. Everything. You debated over whether uh, the character yes. should wear shoes. Yes, absolutely. The, the skin tone, um, because there were so many more things about the art that we had to consider because the art tells a story even more so than the text. So it would be, we can't have any red tones in um, the people's faces because then that might might flag off some type of alcoholism. Uh, we can't have them barefoot because then that symbolizes poverty. Uh, what is the body shape, especially if there are people that do not appreciate fry bread because they say that it might add to health problems of obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart issues, and then, so if we have these larger-looking characters, some people might say, well, there you go. That's what happens when you eat too much fry bread. But we wanted to be able to speak to all of these groups. So then we had um, a massive thing at the end of the book uh, called Back Matter, which is otherwise known as an author's note. And so I went in for about 3,000 words. I mean, this was like an academic article that was footnoted, that was researched. I had all these research assistants helping me out, uh, where we explain all of the problems with fry bread. We explain the deprivation. We explain the stealing of land, the murdering of people. And this is suggested in the text. So one of the stanzas in the poem of Frybread talks about the long walk, the stolen land. And I want the kids to ask questions. What was the long walk? The long walk would have been relocation from ancestral lands to Indian territory. What was the stolen land? Who stole it? 
and why did they steal it? And so those suggestions are like Easter eggs. We can see that there's something more that's there, and there's a story behind every single one of those words. So it invites curiosity. It educates the children, and it also educates the parents. So Fry Bread, it might be classified as a children's picture book, but it's something that's for all ages because grown-ups, teachers could read this book and learn from the back matter. They could learn from the art. They could learn from the text mm -hmm. of the manuscript of this book. So it's something that's for absolutely everyone. And it's also great to look at. And then at the end, I expose my grandmother's recipe. Yeah. And then I put it uh, in there so that people can try it on their own. Yeah, there's a lot to learn in this book, including about the significance of doll making among Native Americans. Absolutely. And so the Seminole, I'm Seminole, a member, of, an enrolled member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. And so there's the Seminole Nation, which is in Oklahoma, and then there's the Seminole Tribe that's in Florida. So those are the people that never left Florida, and so they're still there. Um, and so they, more so than the people in Oklahoma, have a doll-making tradition. They make it from, uh, from natural products, from grass, um, from different substances. And the most amazing thing about these dolls is the clothes that the dolls wear are seminal uh, patchwork patterns. But this is something that exists now uh, it existed then, so it's this wonderful continuity of toys, of culture that can be shared with Seminole kids and then also with other people. Fun fact about you, when you were 13 years old, you won a fishing derby for catching 72 fish in two hours. Yeah, and that, I always refer back to that if I'm ever having, like, not so great a day. <laughs> I can think back to that because um, it was a day where I just had incredible luck. And all I was using for bait in this fishing derby was frozen corn. And so these fish just kept biting and biting over and over. And then I ran away with this trophy that I still have. And I can look at that trophy and say, at one point in my life, everything went right hmm. just like I wanted it to. Huh. Well, everything is going right with this book, Fry Bread. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about it. Thank you for having me on. Kevin Noble Millard's Fry Bread is out now from Roaring Brook Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Laura Babiak and Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening.